You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to us. And when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. So today's Bible reading will be taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 4. So I'll be reading from the CSB version. Uh, we'd encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles, and the passage will also be displayed on the screen. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on Him. Why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebelling? The whole head is hurt, and the whole heart is sick. From the sole of the foot even to the head, no spot is uninjured. Wounds, welts, and festering sores, not cleansed, bandaged, or soothed with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities burned down. Foreigners devour your fields right in front of you, a desolation like a place demolished by foreigners. Daughter Zion is abandoned like a shelter in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would resemble Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are all your sacrifices to me? asks the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you? This trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen your hands are covered in blood. Wash yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come, let us settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, 
you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The faithful town, what an adulteress she has become. She was once full of justice, a righteousness once dwelt in her. But now, murderers, your silver has become dross to be discarded. Your beer is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, friends of thieves. They all love graft and chase after bribes. They do not defend the rights of the fatherless, and the widow's case never comes before them. Therefore, the Lord, of, Lord God of armies and the mighty one of Israel declares, Ah, I will get even with my foes. I will take my revenge against my enemies. I will turn my hand against you, and you will burn away. Your dross completely. I will remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges to what they were at first, and your advisers to what they were at the start. Afterward, you will be called the righteous city, a faithful town. Zion will be redeemed by justice, those who repent by righteousness. At the same time, both rebels and sinners will be broken, and those who abandon the Lord will perish. Indeed, they will be ashamed of the sacred trees you desired, and you will be embarrassed because of the garden shrines you have chosen. For you will become like an oak whose leaves are withered, and like a garden without water. The strong one will become tinder, and his work a spark. Both will burn together, with no one to extinguish the flames. The vision that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so that we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation and they will never again train for war. This is the word of God. Uh, God, we do ask uh, that as we uh, look at your word, Uh, that we might see a picture, God, of what you want us to be. A picture, God, of who you long for your church to be. A picture, God, of what you are working and transforming your world to be. Help us, God, be gripped by this vision, uh, to not be so um, despondent or or to despair at the state of our world or the church today, but instead, God, uh, that you might lift our eyes to see something so so much greater. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Honest question, when you look at the church, what do you see? When you look at the church, what do you see? If you're not a Christian and you look at your Christian friends gathered on Sundays and they invite you to things, and what, what do you see? What goes through your mind? You see, the church is supposed to be that place of grace. That, that home of holiness, the, the sanctuary for sinners, the, the place where anyone can be forgiven. 
where the wayward can come home, where, where the dirty can be cleansed. It should be that one place of all places where anyone at all can come and find a new life, a second chance, and a fresh start. But if we're honest, and we need to be, some people look at the church and think, this isn't what it's meant to look like. This isn't what it's meant to look like. Because instead of getting grace, actually they feel guilt. Instead of finding forgiveness, they just feel condemned. Instead of being loved, they meet their Christian mates and they just feel judged. Uh, Some of my friends grew up within the church and and they since walked away from God. And, And I'm convinced, if I know them well enough, I'm convinced that actually some part deep inside of them wants to come back to God. I'm convinced, actually, that a lot of my non-Christian mates are thinking about, oh, I really want to, I'm interested in hearing about this Christianity thing, figuring out who Jesus is, but, but they don't come. And what stops them is not God. What stops them is us. You see, they want to come back to God, but actually, when they look at the church, they think to themselves, why would I ever want to go back to that? They'll just judge me for my past. Treat me like an outcast. And you know what? It's not like they're any better than I am. At least I'm not faking it. At least I'm honest. And and if you're a Christian here, we need to be honest, right? We, We can't just deny what they say and dismiss it. Defend the church. You go, no, 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 we're not like that. No, we, we, need, to, we need to stop. We need to be honest. We, we need to recognize that actually it's true in, in one sense, the church, Christians, we're not what we're meant to look like often, are we? And if we're not going to be that place of grace that we're meant to be, then how in the world can we transform our world into what it's meant to be? That that whole problem is something of the situation that, that this prophet Isaiah is speaking into. You'll see in in chapter 1, verse 1, he introduces the vision concerning, of all places, Judah and Jerusalem, that that great city of God. You you see, in the Old Testament, this was the place, Jerusalem was that place of grace, where, where any nation should have been able to come and find that fresh start. Jerusalem was the microcosm of God's master plan for the whole world. Anyone in the world should have been able to look at Jerusalem and see a picture of what the world was meant to be. But as Isaiah arrives through the gates of Jerusalem, let me ask, what do you think he sees? This isn't what it's meant to look like. You see, under King Uzziah, Jerusalem it was closer, at least, to picture perfect. But, but after Uzziah's death, After the brief reign of his son Jotham, under kings Ahaz and Hezekiah, Judah, it descends into darkness. It becomes a city of sin and its light stops shining to the world. And it's that same problem, right? If Jerusalem isn't the city that it's meant to be, how will it transform the world into the, well, nations, what they're meant to be? This is what happens in Isaiah chapter 1, what Sam just read for us before. The prophet, he projects five images, 
five pictures before us, sort of like negatives on a film strip. And when we play this film, we see something truly amazing. It's true. Jerusalem starts off, it's a city of sin. It's a basket case. It's not what it's meant to look like. But then as we go on through these next four pictures, next four negatives, we'll see that actually, that's not the end of the story. Over the, next, over the successive five pictures, God is transforming Jerusalem into everything that it was always meant to look like. And let me tell you why that's such good news. If God can transform Jerusalem, he can transform the church. And if God can transform the church, well, he can transform the whole world. And if he can transform the whole world, then he can transform you. So why don't we see the very first picture, the very first negative on this film strip. It's right there in verses 1 to 9. The picture is one of rebellious children. Rebellious children. Now, many of you sitting here, you might not think that a rebellious child is really all that surprising. Almost comes part of the deal, doesn't it, right? Gosh, if you ask some of your parents, some of you might right now be that rebellious child. But the parents among us know just actually how painful it is to have a rebellious child. To have a son or a daughter walk away from the family. Think about it, right? Children, they're supposed to love their family, not leave them. Rebellious child, that, that isn't what it's meant to look like. But it's the picture of Jerusalem and God's people in verses 2 to 4. Just, just, we hear God's anguished voice here. Look at what he says. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Just imagine for a moment a father playing with his young boy, a mother caring for her young girl. All the memories. But then that son or that daughter, as they grow up, turn their backs and walk away. Verse 4, they abandon their father. Father, they despise their mother. They turn their backs on the very people who gave them life and love. Verse 3 says that even the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's feeding trough. My cat Carson knows who I am. I I don't let any of you feed him so he knows that he needs me, right? But but not Judah, they they don't know me. And this isn't what it's meant to look like. In verses 5 to 6, God pleads with his rebellious children, why do you want more beatings? Why, Why do you keep on rebelling? You can hear the Father's voice, right? Look at you. Look at what sin is doing to you. Your whole body from head to heart is sick. You've got wounds all over and nothing you're doing, nothing you try can can ever heal your hurt. Can't you see that sin is is self-destructive? Can't you see that leaving me and living without God is killing you? It's like seeing your daughter leave home and get trapped into this toxic relationship that she even can't see is hurting her so deeply. And as a, as a mum or a dad, you're just looking at your, you're looking at your baby girl and you're thinking, why don't you just come home? 
Can you hear the pain in God's voice? Can you hear the rending of his heart? This is a picture of Jerusalem. Remember that they rejected the Lord. They relied on anything but God. Syria, Israel, Assyria, Egypt, or Babylon. Every nation in the world, anything, anyone, just not God. Surely the most tragic words, 2 Kings 16, Ahaz, the king, runs to Assyria. And look at what he pledges, right? I am your servant and your son. If you were Judah's father, how devastated would you be to hear those words? You are my son, Judah. I loved you. And Judah just turns around and says, I hate. And so we find the consequence in verses 7 to 8. A desolate land, destroyed cities, devoured fields, a place demolished by, here's the irony, a a land and a nation absolutely wiped out by the very people and nations that Judah relied on. It didn't pay off. Judah trapped itself in a series of toxic relationships and it couldn't even see how it was killing it. And now look at where they are. Jerusalem as the last city standing, like a shelter in a vineyard, like a solitary lonesome shack in a wide cucumber field, and the only reason why it hasn't been totally wiped out is because of God's mercy. This isn't what it's meant to look like. But it's a picture of sin, isn't it? It's actually a picture of a life lived apart from God. It's as if God is pleading with us, when will we realize that living without God is just self-destructive? That relying on anyone but God will actually never work out. When will we realize that the only person we can truly and wholly trust is Jesus? When will we heed our Father's call? Come home. Come home. There's our first picture, a rebellious child. The second picture we see in verses 10 to 17 is no better. Bloody hands. Bloody hands. We've all seen that scene in a movie, haven't we? The camera pans and then focuses on a pair of blood-stained hands. And the moment you see it, you know exactly what it means. It's violent. It's sinister. It's wicked. Something here has gone terribly wrong. Because our hands, right, they they were created to to, to bless others. They were created to praise and worship God, if indeed you're the hand-raising type. Not, Not to harm others and take life. But it's the picture we find in these verses, 10 to 17. The rebellious child has bloody hands. Judah's rebellion against God is literally bleeding into their whole life. They've become so wicked that Isaiah says in verse 10, they're as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. Those two cities in Genesis which deserve to be wiped out by God. You can't get more rebellious 
and unjust and wicked as this. But here's the kicker. Here's the worst part of all. Here's the sting in the tail. On the inside, well, actually on the outside, from Monday to Saturday, they're sitting against everyone they see, but on Sunday, they're still turning up to worship God. The the hands that shed blood on Saturday are the hands that praise God just a few hours later. In verse 12, these Judeans, they're still appearing before God. They're still offering sacrifices, bringing burnt offerings, celebrating festivals in honor of God. See, if you look at these people on the outside, they look religious and righteous. They're consistent. They turn up at 10.30 on Sunday morning. They lift their hands in praise. They serve in a ministry team. They even might know just a little bit more of their Bible. But verse 15 says that the very hands lifted in prayer are the same hands that are exploiting the poor, oppressing the needy, abusing the vulnerable. This is rank hypocrisy. It's it's empty religion. It's fake Christianity. I asked one of my friends recently, what what of all things is the thing that you hate most? They they do this in these sort of team-building exercises. You've got to ride in a corner of the box. What is the thing you dislike most about people working in a team? Uh, And someone that I was in this uh, team workshop with said, I don't like it when people are fake. I don't like it when people are fake. Well, God's on your side. This is what he says, I've had enough. I have no desire. Stop it. I I can't stand it. I'm tired of putting up with it. Or in words that you really can't get any clearer than this, I hate it. And who can blame God, right? Like, who can blame him? This isn't what we're meant to look like. And who can blame our non-Christian friends who sometimes look at the church and go, why would I join that? It is one of those moments where actually God might agree with them. God will not tolerate our fake Christianity. He won't accept us turning up on Sunday, lifting our hands in praise, serving in a ministry team, even knowing our Bible, but all the while walking straight past a newcomer who's standing alone, boss, would rather actually hang out with the people that we're comfortable with. Doing that all the while, ignoring a sister who's struggling with depression because she she just takes too much time. Closing our home and our hearts to a brother who's lonely because we don't want to disrupt our family life withholding our money from the Christian poor because we'd much rather buy that latest piece of tech. Quietly judging that person who's finally, after many years, come back to God with a checkered and sin-stained past. You see, we might not bloody our hands with violence. We, We just don't lift them in mercy at all. And here's the question that Isaiah asks, right? How? How is it that we can be lifting our hands in praise of the God who gives grace, but not open our arms to welcome the lonely, to comfort the distressed, to serve the needy? It's no wonder that some people look at the church and think, why would I want to be part of that? Why would I ever go back to that? 
Because maybe they don't see bloody hands, but they see idle hands that remain unmoved for the needy. Hands that remain unmoved for them. So here, verses 16 and 17, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight, stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Friends, that, that, right there, verses 16 and 17, keep reading that, that is a picture of what we're meant to look like. Wash those bloody hands. Lift those idle hands. Cease our empty religion. Stop your fake Christianity. Start looking like what we're meant to be. Move towards the newcomer who's standing alone. Make time for the sister who's struggling with depression. Open your heart and your home to the brother who's lonely. Give your money to the Christian poor. Love the person who's come home to God or who's trying to figure out who God is with all their baggage and all their shame. Give the world a reason to look at us and go, Aha! That. That is what the world is meant to look like. A place of grace, a home of holiness, a sanctuary for a sinner like me. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be wonderful? It is not, though, the picture that Isaiah sees in Jerusalem. But as our film strip rolls on, we see no longer a rebellious child nor bloody hands. But in verses 18 to 20, almost at the heart of this vision, we see something so much better. Pure white snow. Pure white snow. For the first time in this vision, we see an image of hope. A picture that shows that these bloody hands can be washed clean. There are few sights as pure as white snow. I know that many of you love going to Buller or Falls Creek to carve up those slopes, or if you're starting out leaf down on that snowboard, whatever that means. Isn't it just stunning as you go down? I mean, I haven't for 20 years, so I can only imagine, right? But isn't it stunning to see pure white snow? Everything that bloody hands are not. The biggest contrast there. But look at what God promises in verse 18. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they're crimson red, they'll be like wool. Isn't that stunning? If you imagine Judah's rebellion and injustice and sin as a soiled stain on a white sheet, God promises, I'll remove that stain forever. Hands covered with blood, hearts stained by sin, a life marred by shame, all of it, God will wash clean. You, you might be here today, I, I might not know you, I know many of you, I don't know all of your stories, but you might hear the story of Jerusalem and you might think, gosh, that sounds awfully familiar. You might think, oh, you know what, Adam, I was that rebellious child. 
I, I ran away. I relied on anyone but God. I was that person who threw myself into that toxic relationship when that didn't work out, that relationship, that didn't work out, that relationship. And you know what? I'm starting to realize that it just was destroying my life. Living away from God, living by myself, living for myself, relying on myself, it's just self-destructive. And you might have heard your Christian friends say, why don't you come to God? And you're like, no, not going to do that. But when you look at the white sheet of your life, all you see on that sheet is the soiled stain of every wrong decision, every bad relationship, every shameful regret. All you see on that white sheet is the stain of sin, a life without God. God says, I'll remove that stain forever. I'll make the white sheet of your heart and your life pure again. I'll wipe your record. I'll clean your slate. I'll clear your debts. I'll forgive your sins. I'll give you that, that second chance, that new life, that fresh start. I'll be for you everything that you look at Jerusalem and can't see, everything you look at your own life and you can't. I'll do that for you. That's why I said Jesus, to die for us. Hebrews 9.14 says that the blood of Christ cleanses our consciences from dead works. Jesus' death removes the reason for all our guilt and shame. Here's a tip, right? Observation, though, you would probably know this. If you take a dirt-stained cloth and wash it in blood, probably won't be made clean. Don't try it at home. Don't know where you're getting the blood from as well. If you take our sin-stained heart and wash it in Jesus' blood, it will be cleansed forever. Christians talk about Jesus dying so much. Why? Jesus died so that our sin-stained hearts might be cleansed, so that these bloody hands might be made into pure white snow. Jesus died to transform us into everything we were meant to look like. And all we have to do in verse 19 is to be willing and obedient. Verse 20, don't refuse and rebel. All we have to do is to stop relying on anyone but God. Especially, stop relying on ourselves. All we have to do is to come home to God and to wholly rely on Him. And God will take the the bloody hands of His rebellious children and make them pure white snow. But But I want you to see as we move along this film strip and see this fourth negative, this fourth picture, He'll He'll do more than just wash our hands. He'll transform our lives. He won't just take away the problem. No, he'll transform us into everything we were meant to be. And he'll do it by putting us through a redeeming fire. A redeeming fire. That's the fourth picture we see, a redeeming fire. We don't often think of fire as redeeming, do we? If I were to go through fire, I don't think the effect on me quite literally would be my redemption. Let's not try it. Well, we imagine that fire, what does it do? It consumes and destroys. 
It doesn't restore or redeem. But there are flames which do just that, aren't there? Think of the fire of a blacksmith that purifies a bar of gold. The star of Nita Valia that forges Thor's axe. There's a sort of redeeming fire that creates and doesn't destroy. Uh, That's the sort of fire that Isaiah has in mind. A flame that will purify Jerusalem. That will melt away her sin. That will transform you and me into what we were always meant to look like. Because gosh, when you look at our lives, you look at that white sheet and all that stain, you think, gosh, we really need that cleansing agent, don't we? If our lives were a bar of gold, which would be wonderful, you just look at it and see all the impurities there. Gosh, we need these things taken out of our lives. And the same is true for Jerusalem. Look at it in verses 21 to 23. We see just how far short Jerusalem falls of everything she's meant to be. Look at the comparisons in these three verses. Or four. Jerusalem is supposed to be the faithful town, but instead what is she? The adulteress. She's supposed to be full of justice, but instead she's overrun by murderers. She's supposed to be pure silver, but instead she is worthless dross, the impurity that should just be melted off and thrown away. I love the next comparison. She's supposed to be full-strength beer. There you go. God likes full-strength beer. Instead, what is she? Diluted. Heineken light. Cash. Cloud. What's the point, really? In every way, Jerusalem is not what she's meant to look like. Gosh, in verse 24, God calls Jerusalem his foes and enemies. And he promises to come against her. And when you, when you look, see this picture of Jerusalem, you know, rebellious children with bloody hands, you think, who can blame God? If I were God, I'd be coming against them with hellfire. Thankfully, for all our sakes, I'm not. And that's not what God does. He comes for them with redeeming fire. A fire not to destroy, but to restore. Not to deconstruct, but to reconstruct. A fire not to judge, but a fire that saves. You see, just as God will wash our bloody hands, He will refine our sinful hearts. He'll send redeeming fire to burn away your dross completely to remove all your impurities. I just love this picture, right? You you imagine first this ruined city overrun by murderers and orcs, and afterward, you'll be called a righteous city, a faithful town. Do you see what God is doing here? He's taking the most broken place in the world and transforming it into everything she was meant to look like. You, you might wonder, why, why does God allow or even send Assyria to attack Jerusalem? Remember, right, this is the problem that they're in. They've got Assyria on their doorstep. Their, their entire field and nation has been wiped out. And this is somehow God's redeeming fire. Why would God do that? Well, firstly, the people of Judah asked for it, right? I mean, they chose to rely on anyone but God, and now they're paying the price. 
But secondly, God is using this attack on Jerusalem as a redeeming fire. He is burning off their trust in anyone but him. He's demonstrating that he alone is worth relying on. I get it, right? You, you might look at church. I hope you don't think this is about church, but you might. And so I want to allow for that to be true, right? You might look at church or God's people, Christians, and go, why, why would I ever want to join that? I mean, they say they love God and love each other, but they're just using God and using each other. Just it's a social club. And this guy called Jesus is invited to the table. They're just using a social group here just to, to justify their middle, upper-class aspirations for religious white picket fence. They're just really no different from anyone else. They say they're this place of grace where there's forgiveness, but actually I know that if I come, with everything that I've done, they'll just judge me for my past. But maybe you might think that on some level. And, and, and you know, I hate to say it, but, but that picture might at least be partially true. It's true, we're not Jerusalem, right? we're not as bad as, we, we might not be as bad as Jerusalem, but surely we should be slow to immediately go, oh, well, we're nothing like them. I mean, through every age, whether it's the 8th century BC or 2022 AD, fake Christianity is everywhere, isn't it? And whether it's to this degree or to a smaller degree, it is true that, that we are not what we're meant to look like. And if that's what you see in the church today, can I, can I urge you, don't despair. Don't give up. Don't walk away. Because God will refine his people with a redeeming fire. He will burn away our sin. He'll remove our transgressions. He'll make us everything we're not, but everything we're meant to be. And it all turns on one thing, repentance. Repentance. Look at verse 27. Zion will be redeemed by justice, those who repent by righteousness. Well, you, all, you might have this negative impression of what repentance is, right? You imagine that man standing outside Flinders Street Station on that milk crate, screaming, repent, or you're going to burn in hell. And when you hear him, it almost sounds like he doesn't want you to, so that's terrible, right? But, but repent, you know what the word repent means. It just means to turn around, to change your mind. It, it really is, re repentance simply means to heed God's call, come home. Come home. And if we repent and come home to God, here's what he'll promise to do. He'll, he'll refine us. He'll redeem us. He'll, he'll take the, the shards of our broken life and restore us. He'll make us into everything that we were always meant to be. But if we insist on being that rebellious child, if we refuse to come home, God says we won't be refined silver, we'll be the rejected dross. Many people in Jerusalem at that time, they were worshipping sacred trees and garden and shrines. They were worshipping anything but God. They got to the level of choosing trees, right? And God says, you'll be what you worship. You'll be what you worship. You worship a dried up tree, you'll 
be a dried up tree. And you'll be destroyed by my consuming fire. For when God comes in fire, that fire will either destroy the rebel, but it will redeem the repentant. If you're not a Christian, please see, this, I know this is, is, is heavy, but this is a stark choice that faces all of us without exception. If we refuse to come home to God, that is repent. If we, if we insist on, on rebelling, if we insist on living a life without God, that self-destructive life, it's no wonder that actually our lives will be destroyed. But that's not what God wants. He's calling you to come home, to repent, to to come back to Him. And if we do, here's what He promises. He will refine and redeem us into everything we were ever meant to be. There is a choice before all people to insist on a life without God, a self-destructive life that ends only in destruction, or to come home to God and to be restored and loved by God. But can I say, that's not even the end of this film strip. For in this final picture, God won't just redeem his people. He won't just save you, though he will. He'll do so much more. He'll transform the whole world. And in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, we will see, finally, nations at peace. Nations at peace. I think the one thing more tragic than seeing nations in conflict and strife around our world is how quickly we forget. Isn't it? You you turn on the news, you see the tragedy. Who who can forget hundreds the scene of hundreds of of Afghanis flooding the tarmac, clambering on cargo planes, seeking to flee the Taliban? It turns out that all of us can forget. It's tragic. Who isn't worried about about unrest in Europe, growing tension in the Taiwan Strait, increasing things that feel closer and closer to home? You know, some of us, we might look at the church and go, oh, this isn't what it's meant to look like. You don't have to be a Christian. All of us can look at the world and know that definitely isn't what it's meant to look like. But if God redeemed his people, he will transform our world. If God redeemed his people, he will transform our world. Isn't that amazing? He he forgave his rebellious children. He cleansed their bloody hands. He refined their hearts by fire. So what's the world? He'll heal it. Just look at the picture in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Jerusalem, God's people, will sit atop the mountain of the Lord, and they and instruction will go out into out of Zion. And from this city, this is what God will do: God will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. They'll beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up sword against nation. I love this. They will never again train for war. That's a picture of what our world is meant to look like. You've got to understand, right, this is not just some spiritual fantasy that weird Christians believe. This is a picture of what our world will one day be, physically, materially, and tangibly. 
a world where all of us who rely on Jesus will one day live. A world where the nations are at peace. And it all starts with the city of God. It all starts with us. And from this redemptive epicenter of the church, God will bring an end to injustice. He'll reconcile all conflicts. He'll heal our broken world. Friends, can you see how this vision has developed, right? It started off with those two tragic, depressing, hopeless images of a rebellious child with bloody hands. But as the film strip moved on and we saw those two middle, the third and fourth images, we saw hope of pure white snow and a redeeming fire. And then this very first vision of Isaiah closes with this amazing picture of the nations at peace. Can you see from the first image to the last a picture of what we're not meant to look like all the way to a picture of what the world is meant to look like and will one day be? So when you look at the church, when you look around, what do you see? I mean, I'm not blind, right? I can see it too, that the sin, the, the pride, the hypocrisy. It's depressing. It's sad. But Isaiah wants to show us something so much more. He wants us to see not just what we are. He wants us to see what we're meant to be. And he wants us to see what God is transforming us into. The church as, as a place of grace. That home of holiness. That, that sanctuary, that safe house for sinners, where, where anyone can be forgiven, where you can come home, and where you can be cleansed. And you know what? I look at so many of you in our church family, and I see so many of you committed to being exactly that. I give thanks for all of you. We are, though, a mixture of the sinner and the saint, though, aren't we? Broken and whole, hypocritical and holy, garbage and glory. But you know what? That actually kind of gives me hope. It gives me hope that we're weak, sinful, broken. It gives me hope that even a church which I love like ours isn't everything we're meant to look like. Because if God can take a proud and hypocritical church and redeem it, well, you bet he can transform a dark and divided world. And if he can transform our dark and divided world, guess what? He can restore my broken and shattered life. You might not be a Christian. Your friend dragged you here today. And some part of you might go, oh, look, I've always wanted to figure it out. But you, you think to yourself, why would I ever want to join that? Maybe you grew up in church and you walked away from God and it wasn't so much God, but it was Christians that drove you away. And you want to get right with God. You want to come home. You know your life isn't good without Him. But you look at the church and go, why would I ever want to go back to that? This is what God would say. I'm in the business of transformation. And if you look around and you see a bunch of broken sinners, guess what? I'm transforming them. 
the church in all its brokenness and sin is ground zero of my transforming power. And if I can redeem a bunch of sinners like this, no offense, I'm there as well. And if I can transform our broken and shattered world, well, you know what? I can transform your broken and shattered life. So will you heed my call? Will you come? Will you come home? Though your sins are scarlet, I will make them white as wool. Though they are crimson red, they'll be like wool. Will you come? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we are a broken people. We know that we have been rebellious children. We know that our hands are so often stained by blood or not lifted at the needs of others. We know, God, that our hearts are stained, our lives are broken, and they need to be restored. So we ask, God, that you would give us clean hands. You would give us pure hearts, that we wouldn't give our souls to anyone else, but trust in you alone. And for any of us here uh, who have been away from you for many years, who have thought in our hearts or felt your spirit tug us home, but we look at the church and go, we're just so afraid of going back there. We pray, God, that you would help us see the transforming power and work that you're doing in the church is something that you can do in us as well. And for for those of us, God, who wouldn't call ourselves Christian, who wouldn't follow you, we pray, God, that we would see our own brokenness, our own sin, our own need, and we'd look to you as the only God who can cleanse us, the only God who can save. Please, God, we pray for our church. We love our church, but we love you more. And we ask, God, that Cross and Crown might be a church that is a light to the nations, that shines the light of the gospel to a dark and needy world. And that the whole world might look at us and our love for one another and say, aha, that is a picture of what we're meant to look like. Do these things, we ask and pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.